of it, and perhaps even the importance and the significance of it as well. Now, John has already told us it's Passover week, back in chapter 11. He said the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. During Passover, the population of Jerusalem would just mushroom. It would explode. People would come in, come to town from all over. Many of these folks have come from Galilee in the north, and they would have been familiar with the, with the Lord Jesus and his Galilean ministry. And then John's going to tell us in chapter 12 that eyewitnesses of the Lord raising Lazarus from the dead, folks who were there and saw that, they can't shut up about it. I mean, they're testifying. They're spreading the word. They're telling what Jesus did there in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, raising Lazarus from the dead. And then you have this messianic expectation. They're looking for their Messiah. They're longing for that day when God's anointed one would come. And then John told us in, in chapter 11 and verse 56, they were seeking for Jesus and they're saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? So the town is abuzz about Jesus. So there's this messianic fervor, this expectation. Everybody's talking about Jesus. He is the talk of the town. It's Passover week. And then the word comes. He's here. He's here. He's coming. He's right down the road. And a large crowd comes from Jerusalem out to meet Jesus. And they escort him in, a crowd in front of him and a crowd behind him. And they welcome Jesus to Jerusalem as though they're welcoming a a visiting dignitary, or a returning king. That sets the stage for what John describes. In John chapter 12 and verse 12, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. I mean, he's got to be the Messiah. He's somebody who can raise the dead. That's got to be the guy. So they go out and they receive Jesus. They welcome him with a king's welcome. So if you have your listening guide, here we go. Let's jump in. We're going to see that Jesus is a different kind of king. He is a different kind of king. I'm not going to go into all the uh, the background, the scriptural background or the historical background of all these details of the triumphal entry. But suffice it to say, everything about this screams Messiah and King. Everything about it, from the palm branches to the donkey to Hosanna to blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the scriptures that are cited and where they're from. I mean, everything about this screams Messiah and King. The crowd is essentially declaring Jesus Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. It is a king's welcome. It is a royal reception. And they are essentially welcoming him as Messiah and King. And they're right about that. I mean, that's, that's one thing they get right. He is the King. He is the Messiah. But they're wrong about what kind of Messiah he's going to be. <laughs> they're wrong about his kingship. He's, he's, he's not the Messiah they wanted. And in essence, they are almost, they're trying to co-opt the Christ. He is the Christ, the Messiah. They're trying to co-opt the Christ, kind of like chapter 6, 
When Jesus fed the 5,000, John tells us that the crowd wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. Well, wouldn't you? I mean, here's a guy, he can heal the sick, he can, he can feed the multitudes. In other words, free food, free health care. I'd vote for that guy, wouldn't you? <laughs> free food, free health care, let's make him king. And Jesus withdrew from them. Here we go again. They're trying to co-opt the Christ. They want to make Jesus into the Messiah they want, to make him the king that they expect, but they have erroneous expectations. He's not going to be the Messiah that they expect. They expect the Messiah to save them from Rome. They, they think the Messiah is going to get rid of the Romans, get rid of these occupiers, this, this foreign government that's running the show. Uh, the Messiah is going to get rid of all that. But Jesus didn't come to save his people from Rome. He came to save his people from their sins. They expect that the Messiah would establish a political kingdom and lead a political kingdom. But Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. They thought that the Messiah would come to, to bring about a, a, national, a, a national sovereignty and lead a national kingdom, but Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven. They expected the Messiah to be this military leader and conqueror. Jesus came to be a sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. So in a sense, they're trying to co-opt the Christ, make Jesus into the Messiah they expected erroneously. But you know that still happens today. <laughs> there are a lot of, you know, some things never change. And there are folks today who are still trying to co-opt Jesus and make Jesus into the Jesus they want instead of the Jesus who is. And there's different permutations of this. There's all kinds of flavors on the theme. Uh, for example, there's, there's the uh, self-help Jesus. He's easy to find. There's all kinds of books about him. Preachers preach about him all the time. The self-help Jesus, the Jesus who's just here to help you. Jesus wants to help you live your life. He wants to help you be the best you you can be. He wants to help you be successful. He wants to help you be happy. He's just here to help you, that self-help Jesus. Or then there's the prosperity Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Would you like to be rich? Go ahead and shake your head yes. You know, you're in church. Don't lie. Yeah, who wouldn't? Well, Jesus wants that too. He wants you to be rich. So he's the prosperity Jesus. And if you just hook up with him, he can put you on the right path and make all your financial dreams come true. There's the prosperity Jesus. Then, of course, there's the political Jesus. And Jesus has, I mean, for 2,000 years, he's been co-opted into every kind of political ideology. Did you all know that Jesus was a Republican? Who knew? Oh, no, wait a minute. I think he's a Democrat. No, he's conservative. No, he's liberal. He's a socialist. No, he's a capitalist. And, and here we go. And Jesus has been co-opted into every kind of political scene that you can imagine. Then there's the activist Jesus. Pick a cause. Any cause will do. Pick a cause, some, some, some movement. You know what? Jesus is down with the movement. And he's, he's all about our cause. And, and if you don't sign up with our cause, well, you're going against Jesus. And it, 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 you don't love Jesus. I mean, if you're not down with a cause, then you don't love Jesus. In fact, you're probably just not even a Christian if you're not a part of our thing. There's the, the activist Jesus. And, of course, then there's the, uh, uh, the theologians. Theologians and preachers, they co-opt Jesus all the time. Where Jesus rides the same theological hobby horse I do. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. I heard one, one preacher say that Jesus was a Calvinist. Well, that's bad news for all the Armenians out there, but, oh, yeah, Jesus was a Calvinist. No, Jesus was a Baptist. No, Jesus is Methodist. No, Jesus was non-denominational, and so I am too, because he was non-denominational. Here we go again, co-opting Jesus. 
And then there's the always affirming, never judgmental Jesus, the lapdog Jesus. He's like a Labrador retriever. He just loves you so much, and he never has a, a negative word. He will never have a criticism or a judgment about any of any things that you say or do, your attitudes. He would never say anything uh, harmful or, or, or negative. He just, he just always affirms you. And by the way, he, just, he knows how busy you are, and, and he's just so grateful. Any time or any attention you could afford to give him, he just, he just laps it up. He just, he just appreciates it so much. My goodness. Sound familiar? On and on co-opting the Christ. I've shared with you this quote from Patrick Morley a number of times. It bears repeating. Patrick Morley wrote this, there is a God we want and there is a God who is and they are not the same God. There is a God we want and there is a God who is and they are not the same God. You stick that in your pipe and smoke it for a while. We can say the same thing about Jesus. There is the Jesus we want then there's the Jesus who is, and they are not the same. Case in point, this crowd outside Jerusalem, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's the Messiah they wanted, but that's not the Messiah who is, and they're not the same. They had erroneous expectations. Jesus is going to be a different kind of king. He's going to be a different kind of Messiah. And they're not going to like it. And the same crowd who said, Hosanna, blessed is he, will say, crucify him, crucify him in a few days. Because he's not the Messiah they wanted. Now here's an ironic twist. This king is coming again. And when he comes again, he'll be like the king they wanted. <laughs> Let me show you. Let's, let's see what that looks like. Go to Revelation 19. Let's go to Revelation 19, or you can just listen. In Revelation 19, verse 11, our same writer, the Apostle John, said this, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, that's the king they thought they were getting. But one day that same king will come back, and he will come back as a warrior king, riding his white charger, and he will destroy his enemies, and he will reign and rule with righteousness and justice and peace. He's a different kind of king. Well, let's keep going, and now we're going to see not only is he a different kind of king, but there's a different path to glory for this king. In verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Let's stop there for a moment. So now we have another path to glory. And we have another unconscious prophecy here in verse 19. Another unconscious prophecy. Now, if you'll remember, the religious leaders have already decided and determined, we're going to kill this guy. He needs to die. They've already determined, they're playing together, they're going to kill Jesus and Lazarus, by the way, but they're going to kill Jesus. 
That's their plan. And yet, here they are watching this scene unfold. This large crowd is going out, giving him a king's welcome. So much for killing him. How's that going for you? You know, what, you're not, you know, this ain't working out too good. And the world is going out to him. Now, that is either amazing irony, that statement, or it's an unconscious prophecy. Like in chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, said, you know, it's expedient for one man to die for his people, to, that the whole nation may live. Now, the Caiaphas... He was justifying murder. We've got to kill this guy to save the nation. So he's justifying murder. One man should die for the nation. One, one man could die for his people. That's expedient. He's justifying murder. But John tells us he's actually speaking above his pay grade. And unwittingly, he is giving a prophetic word from God. And Jesus actually will die for his people that the nation may live. He will die for his people. He didn't really know what he was saying. We kind of have that here. Here these Pharisees tore up at this crowd. I mean, here's the guy that they want dead, and yet he's getting a king's welcome. The crowd is going out there, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the king of Israel. Whoa. And so much for killing him. How's that going? And so they're tore up. Look, the world is going out to him. But then John tells us, watch this, look in verse 20, there are some Greeks who are going up to worship at the feast, and they want to see Jesus. Greeks is kind of a catch-all term for Gentiles. Nine times out of ten, that's, that's what we're talking about. When you see the word Greeks, you know, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that is Gentile. These Greeks are, uh, John doesn't specify, these may be proselyte Jews, Gentiles who have converted to Judaism, but more likely, these are God-fearers. These are Gentiles who love and worship the God of Israel, but they haven't converted to Judaism. So they're not Jews as proselyte Jews. They're Gentiles. They're Greeks. Either way, the point is, they're Greeks. They're non-Jews. They're outsiders. The world, the world is going to him. Now, this is weird. I mean, this whole thing is weird because John's the only gospel writer that tells us about this, and he doesn't do a good job telling us about it. There are some Greeks who show up. They find Philip. Why Philip? Philip goes gets Andrew. Why did he have to go get Andrew? Philip and Andrew go tell Jesus. Well, then what happened? I want to know, don't you? Inquiring minds. I want to know. How'd that go? Did they see Jesus? Did they get to talk to Jesus? What did Jesus say to them? What did they say? How did that turn out? John doesn't even bother. The point is... They were there. And it's a fulfillment. Here's that the world is going to him. And John says, yeah, look right there, right there. The world, these Gentiles, Greeks are going to him. We want to see Jesus. Now, this event, this passage, really the whole gospel, is anticipating Israel's rejection of the Messiah on the one hand. So it's anticipating Israel's rejection of, of, of Jesus and again, that's, that's not a new theme. We got that in chapter 1. He came into his own, and his own received him not. So we knew from the beginning, spoiler alert, this is what's going to happen. So they will reject. Again, the same crowd who, who proclaims him king and Messiah will want to crucify him by the end of the week. But it also anticipates the Gentile mission. So th again, this, this text, this event, but this whole, chapter, this whole gospel anticipates the Gentile mission. That Jesus did not just come for the Jews... He came for the world. He came for the whole world. 
Uh, we, we, we got that in John chapter 1. When John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Not just the Jews. Takes away the sin of the world. In John chapter 4, we have the Samaritan villagers, non-Jews, non-Jews, who declare him, he's the Savior of the world. Not Savior of the Jews or Samaritans, he's the Savior of the world. In John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, not just Israel, not just the Jews, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, not just a Jew, whosoever, anyone who believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So there's that Gentile mission. Now, Jesus isn't just for the Jews. He's for the world. And this text kind of shows us that. Look, the world has gone after him, case in point. So we have this, uh, uh, another unconscious prophecy. Now, that brings us to a turning point. Look in verse 23. And Jesus answered them. Now, John doesn't tell us. Is he talking about the Greeks? Jesus answered the Greeks or the crowd or the disciples. Who's he saying this to? He doesn't tell us. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a turning point. Something has changed. The hour has come. For 11 chapters now, his hour had not yet come. That's what we keep hearing again and again. His hour had not yet come. In John chapter 2, at the wedding feast at Cana, remember they ran out of wine. Mary comes to her son. Jesus, you got to do something. They ran out of wine. Jesus said, what's it got to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 7, his enemies want to seize him. They were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Same thing happens in chapter 8. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So, so far, his hour was in the future. His hour had not yet come. But now, all of a sudden, the hour has come. It's not in the future. It's in the present. His hour is here. The hour has come. And he'll say it again in, verse thir- in chapter 13, verse 1. At the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, He would soon depart out of this world to the Father. In John 17, Jesus will pray for the Father. The hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. So the hour was yet to come. Now the hour has come. Now that raises a question. What hour are we talking about? (laughs) What hour has come? What's here? What are we talking about? In the Gospel of John, his hour is his glorification. His glorification is comes by means of the cross. His hour is the cross. It is death on the cross. That's the hour. Now we can add to that his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, but the focus is the cross, his death on the cross. That's his hour. This is that unexpected path to glory. Again, we're talking about expectations, erroneous expectations. How, you know, one would expect that the path to glory for a king, let alone the Messiah, one would expect that the path to glory would be, okay, there's a coronation. We're going to crown him king, make it official. He is our king. He would assume the throne. He would consolidate his power. 
He's got to get rid of his enemies. I mean, internal enemies and external enemies. So he's going to consolidate his power. He's going to get rid of any occupying forces. We're going to get rid of the Romans. That's what they expected him to do. And then he can conquer additional territory, conquer additional lands, get more money, accumulate wealth, garner fame, and lo and behold, glory. He, he, he's ascribed glory. Look at the fame and the fortune, the honor, the success that is the expected path to glory for a king, let alone the Messiah. That's the expected path. But that's not the path to glory for Jesus, this king, this Messiah. His path to glory is suffering and death on Calvary's cross. That's his hour. His path to glory is through humiliation and shame. Edward Clink calls it the grand irony of the gospel. Listen to what Clink wrote. This is the grand irony of the gospel. The hour of the glorification of the Son of Man, King, Creator, Ruler of all, is made manifest on the cross. That is the place of suffering, humiliation, and shame. The grand irony of the gospel. It's a different path to glory. Well, we have a different kind of a king, a different path to glory, and now I want you to see he brings a different kind of kingdom as well. A different kind of kingdom. Again, erroneous expectations. But he brings a different kind of kingdom. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus brings a whole different kind of a kingdom. Here's how different it is. In his kingdom, you die to live. If you want to live, you got to die. You die to live. Now, in verse 24, he's talking about himself. This is of Christ. He's talking about himself here. It's, that, it's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, listen, to, truly, truly, listen up, pay attention. Look at me. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is important. Are you listening? Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies. And he uses this common everyday illustration. Everybody understands it. If a grain of wheat falls to the ground and remains static, nothing happens. It's a, it's a grain of wheat. But if it dies... It brings forth new life and bears much fruit. Now here Jesus is talking about himself. It's his hour. Jesus will die. He will die. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he will bring new life and bear much fruit. And we are the fruit. Christians, we have that new life and we are the fruit. Think about this for a moment. What if Jesus didn't die on the cross? What if Jesus just showed up Spent three years preaching, telling great stories and parables, telling us about the kingdom of heaven, performing all these crazy miracles. I mean, it's awesome. And then at the end of three years, Jesus says, guys, I've really enjoyed my time here with y'all. Y'all are great. It's been real. It's been fun. It's been real fun. Now I got to go. I'll catch you later. And he ascended to the Father in heavens. You know what that would mean? You'll die in your sins. No one could be saved. Because at the end of the day, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and the sinner shall die. If Jesus had not died on the cross, bearing our sins in his body, dying in our place, you and I could not be saved. We would not be justified. We would not be reconciled to God. We would be doomed in our sins. Thank you, Jesus. He died. He died for the cross so that he might bring forth life and bear much fruit. We are the fruit. Now, in this context, this is of the Christ. He's talking about himself. 
His hour has come. He will die to bear much fruit. But what we know from the rest of Jesus' teachings, for less of the scripture, it's also true of Christians. The same truth is true of his kingdom citizens. This is his kingdom. This is how it works. We die to live as well. We die to bear much fruit. This is, this is kingdom life. We die to live. Paul talks about this a lot. In Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, I died. I've been crucified with Christ in the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I died, and now I have a whole new life in Christ. It's Christ's life in me. In Colossians 3, you have died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. We, we die to live. This is true in the Christian life. We die, we abide in Christ, and we bear much fruit. We'll hear that in John chapter 15. And then in his kingdom, there's a different priority. Let's keep going. There's a whole different priority in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. There's a different priority. Now, when he's talking about loving his life and hating his life, that's not like you hear people saying today, oh, I hate my life. You know, my life, my life stinks. Yeah, I hate my life. Or things are great. I love my life. Yay. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is an idiom. It is a, it's a Semitic expression. It's a phrase. It speaks of priority and preference. To love and hate speaks of a preference and a priority. In his kingdom, he gets preference. In his kingdom, he is the priority of his citizens. In Mark 8, Jesus puts it this way. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's kingdom priority. In his kingdom, you love Jesus first, best, and most. That's his kingdom. That's how it works in his kingdom. His people love him first, best, and most priority. He is more important than any other person in your life. Your relationship with God is more important than any other relationship in your life. Your relationship with him, he is more important than your money or the things that money can buy. In fact, he's more important than life itself. If you have to die for the gospel, so be it. The gospel is more important. He is more important. And what Jesus is saying, you know, you die to live. I mean, you, I get priority. The world says... You got to live for yourself. Take care of number one. No one else is going to. It's your life. It's on you. And if there's something you want in this life, you go get yours. Don't let anybody stand in your way. YOLO, you know, you only live once. So go get all you can. Go get yours, money, fame, fortune, success, whatever that looks like, pleasure. You go get what you want out of this life. And Jesus is saying, no, if you live that way, you'll die empty. And you'll try to save your life and you'll end up losing your life. And what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. No, you live for me. You lose your life for my sake. You live for me. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And you'll end up saving your life. And you'll find life. And you'll experience life in Christ. Eternal life. In fact, in verse 23, the word life shows up three times. In the Greek, it's two words. Two different words. He who loves his life speaks of an earthly life. He who loves his earthly life loses it. He who hates his earthly life in this world will keep it to, oh, different word, life eternal. In him was life. That's this word, eternal life. In him was life, the life that God has and the life that God gives. You'll find in him life eternal. So in his kingdom, you die to self, you live for Christ, seek first his kingdom, and you'll find life 
and, and experience his life. And then there's a different kind of life as well in his kingdom. In verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. That's a different kind of life. Again, he's a different kind of king, and he brought a different kind of kingdom. And here's what it looks like to be in his kingdom, to be his citizen. For him to be your king means that you serve him. You serve and follow Jesus. This is what Christians do. This is what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. You serve and follow him. You serve him. You live for him. You, you live to fulfill his will, his mission, and his purpose for your life. And it's all for his glory. You serve him. You follow him. That's a, that's a discipleship word. This is what disciples do. You, you literally follow him around. You go where he goes, you do what he does, and you obey what he says. That's what it means to follow Christ. And, and that's the Lord's invitation. Follow me. You serve and follow Christ. Here again, we come up against those erroneous expectations. And here, so many preachers preach, you think Jesus is just here to help you live your best life now. No. You die. You die. You reckon yourself dead to sin self in the world. And then you live in Christ. And you live with Christ. And you live for Christ. That's his kingdom. That's the Messiah who is. That's the Jesus who is. But now, here it gets good. We have two kingdom promises in this verse. Let's keep going. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am... There my servant will be also. There's the first promise. You will be with the son. He who serves me, where I am, my servant will be also. In other words, he'll be with me, I'll be with him. We'll be together. That's true right now. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, he himself hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He is with you now. You serve him, you follow him, he is with you you every day. That's good news, isn't it? Say amen. That's good news. I don't want to spend a minute without the Lord. He's with me. It's not only true now, it's true in eternity. We'll hear him say in John 14, I'll come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be also in eternity. So those who serve and follow him, you'll be with the son now and forever. You'll be with him. He'll be with you. You'll be together. But wait, there's more, like the infomercial. There's more. There, the servant will be also, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There's another promise. The Father will honor him. You'll be with the Son and honored by the Father. In 1 Samuel 2, God says, those who honor me, I will honor. God honors those who honor him. And here Jesus says, those who serve the Son will be honored by the Father. Now, i got to tell you, I don't know what that means. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I do know from the rest of Scripture there's a judgment day coming. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this judgment, one day you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, and you'll give an account. You will be judged. And those who have been faithful servants of the Lord, you walked with him, you followed him, you served him, you shared his gospel, made disciples, you ministered in his name. If you have been a good and faithful servant, there will be rewards for that. And among those rewards, you have this promise, the Father will honor him. I don't know exactly what that means, but I want it. I want that. I want to be with the Son. I want to be honored by the Father. You know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to serve and follow Jesus. Don't you want to do that? I want to be with the Son and honored by the Father. Whatever, whatever that looks like. There is the Jesus we want. 
and there is the Jesus who is. They're probably not the same. Check your expectations. Make sure you're not co-opting the Christ. That you're trying to conform Jesus into the Jesus you really wish he were. Whatever that looks like. The activist Jesus, the lapdog Jesus, the self-help Jesus, whatever it is. No, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the righteous judge who will judge the living and the dead. He is the word of God. And if you'll put your faith and trust in him, not the Jesus of your own imagination, but the Jesus who is, you put your faith and trust in him and you'll find life. He'll forgive your sins, save your soul, and make you a child of God. You die to sin self in the world and you'll find life in Christ and with Christ and for Christ. And you spend that life, that new life, living, serving, following Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we realize that uh, we are as guilty as that crowd was back then, so guilty of trying to co-opt the Christ to make you in our image. When we think you're just like us, and uh, you like the things we like, and what's important to us is important to you, and Lord, we're, we're so guilty of doing the same thing. Lord, forgive us. Help us to realize our erroneous expectations and to receive you and to worship you and to serve you for the God you are as the God you are. Lord, I pray for the one who's never been saved and help them to see they need Jesus Christ. It's not about a church or religion or a creed or a code or a rite or a ritual, but they need Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They need the forgiveness of sin. God, I pray that you'd bring them to the cross even today. Just take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.